Last week, we began our journey through the first two chapters of Luke as we really hone in on the Christmas story. According to Carson and Moo, the Gospel of Luke is written with the purpose that the church may know the certainty of the things that have been taught. That the original reader and and now we can join with the original readers, right, the original audience, and have the assurance of the things that are recorded in God's Word, specifically through Luke's Gospel. And for us to be certain in our own minds the significance of what God has done for us through Christ. And isn't that really what we celebrate here in this season? As we pause and reflect on the reason for Christmas. To slow down just a little bit in the busyness of the season. And this is a busy season. This month is a busy month. My wife told me on uh, yesterday, the day before, hey, we need to make sure we're on the same page because this next week is a doozy. And it is. And so we get involved in all kinds of things that that have um, a lot of meaning and some with very little meaning, right? But but the ultimate meaning of Christmas, Christmas, we slow down enough to consider what God has done for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. And I think it's for us very, very important as believers to discipline ourselves to do just that, right? To slow down. And to consider all that is afforded to us through the birth of Jesus Christ. To really reflect and to think and to understand that Jesus was indeed sent for us. And at this time of year, specifically as we think about the coming of Jesus, perhaps John 3.16 takes more personal or significant meaning, if that can be said, right? That we understand that God so loved the world that he sent that he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have what? Eternal life. That God loved the world, that out of his love for his world, God set into motion the greatest rescue story that has ever been told. That he, God, orchestrated the people He orchestrated their movement. He orchestrated the events of time and history to culminate in the death, burial, and resurrection of his son who came to earth as a baby. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. That is what we would consider love. This morning I want us to look at Mary's crucial role in the Christmas narrative. And as we do that, I'd like for you to keep something in the back of your mind as we read these passages together. And it's this, that I want us to consider how the aspects of our own humanity draw us to the love of God. So with that in mind, open your Bibles up, please, to uh, the Gospel of Luke. We'll continue in chapter 1, verse 26 through 38. It says this, Now in the sixth month... The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. 
And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel Gabriel answered to her and said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth, who has also conceived a son in her old age, she was called barren, is now in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Last week we studied the story of Zechariah and his son John the Baptist, who would then become the forerunner of Jesus' ministry. And an angel joins Zacharias in the temple and he gives him the news that he will have a son born to his barren wife, Elizabeth. Six months after this visit in the temple, Gabriel visits Mary in a small town called Nazareth. Remember, we looked last week, or Wes said, that there had been 400 years of silence. 400 years of, 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 of nothing happening. And all of a sudden, we're starting to see some things happen, starting with what we read last week with John the Baptist on the way, and now Jesus is coming. Nazareth is not held in high esteem by those in Jerusalem or even in the surrounding areas. It was Nathaniel, remember, who asked, what good can come out of Nazareth? When Philip asked Nathaniel, hey, don't you want to be a follower of Jesus? His response was, I don't know anything that would come out of Nazareth that would be good or worth following. And then Jesus answers him, right? The angel comes not to a religious center of a nation. Gabriel doesn't come to the capital, but it comes, he comes to a small village with a poor reputation to announce to a young girl God's plan for redemption of all of mankind. And I think it's here that we pause and remember how often God works through ordinary people to do extraordinary things. God is concerned with the ordinary. We think sometimes we've got to be so puffed up and we've got to be something special, and yet we see that's not anywhere found in this narrative. That God uses ordinary people to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. We know through the text that Mary and Joseph were engaged. They were betrothed to one Another, the betrothal was a year-long period of time. This was a prearranged marriage by their parents. And this betrothal period was a long time. It was over a year in order to test the fidelity of the bride and the groom, given the distance between the two parties. And if either failed the test, then the contract would then be dissolved. If Mary were to be found unfaithful in this engagement time, she could be stoned. The engagement commitment at this time was so serious that if it were to be broken, then letters of divorce would have to be drafted. And so certainly all of this is going through the mind of young Mary. It had to have been. What, what, what am I going to do? What are, what are the consequences of, of this? This news would have been very hard to process for Mary and eventually for Joseph. As, as Mary is given this news... 
Surely she's wrestling with all the emotions and all the thoughts that must have been racing through her mind, plus then having to go and tell Joseph. Can you imagine? I mean, you've heard this story over and over again. Can you imagine how is Mary going to go and say to Joseph, Hey, Joseph, in the midst of all that we're in the middle of, right, this betrothal period, I know that my faithfulness has got to be uh, top priority, right, and yours to me. I'm pregnant. But, but it's, it's not, it's, not it's, it's, from, it's from God, right? It's interesting, isn't it, that, that we read later that an angel of God has to be dispatched to Joseph to let Joseph know that this baby is indeed from the Holy Spirit. That Mary's character, that Mary's faithfulness should not come into question and that this betrothal, this engagement, this eventual marriage should remain intact. In verses 28 and 30, we see the greetings from the angel, and then we get a glimpse of some of Mary's emotions. Gabriel says this, he says, Greetings, favored one, in the beginning of verse 28. And we immediately see that Mary is perplexed at this greeting, even frightened, right, at the presence of an angel. And Gabriel detects that she is frightened. And what does he say? He says, do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. He's used to showing up and people being a little frightened, right? We saw that last week. And so he said, here we go again, right? Let me just go ahead and tell you, don't be afraid. Greetings, favored one. Don't be afraid, for you have found favor with God. It's the same admonishment that we see back in verse 13. It's the second time that he has used this word favor in as many sentences. This favor, this word can be, can be defined in the Greek as, as grace. And for us, it's easy for us to say that she is highly favored. Come on, Mary. You are highly favored. You are about to carry and deliver the Savior of the world. What a privilege. What an honor. What a responsibility. Your name will forever be in history. But perhaps for Mary, it was a little bit different, especially at first. I would imagine that it's hard to process an angel showing up out of nowhere. And that's exactly what Mary is processing and in this moment, in this text. Hard to process an angel in her presence telling her that she is highly favored. And because of that favor, because she's highly favored, she will give birth to a son who is already named... And he will reign over the house of Jacob, and his kingdom will have no end. And for us, I think we have to pause and say, favor? That sounds, that sounds like a whole lot of pressure. Rather than favor, maybe that, maybe, I, I think that's, that's absolutely terrifying. And this favor that is given to this young girl, this grace that is given to Mary is an act of God. There is nothing, catch this, there is nothing that Mary did to merit the grace or the favor that was given her. Just as it is for you and I, recipients of God's grace, there is nothing that we have done to receive that favor or that grace. One author puts it this way, Mary was full of grace because God gifted her with grace. She was only worthy of God's choosing because God's choosing made her worthy. That's it. Mary is a normal human being. She's a young girl who's just been given news that none of us can fathom. 
Gabriel goes on in the second part of verse 28, and he says this, The Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. And I, and I wonder if this exclamation made by Gabriel kind of tempered what he was about to say. Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Now, hang on, right? I wonder if this promise is the promise that Mary would cling to over the next nine months. That the Lord is with you. It's the, same, it's the same exclamation that Gideon gets before he goes into battle in Judges 6. The Lord is with you. And certainly as Mary prepares for a season of difficulty, and surely a season of blessing, that she is reminded by Gabriel that she will not be alone. Most definitely there would be times where she would feel alone. She would feel ostracized. Certainly she would feel neglected. And in those moments, in every moment in between, she would have to remember that God was with her. And isn't that something we know now in a spiritual sense, certainly that God, is, God was with her. Just as God is with us, right? But in a physical sense, God is with Mary as she carries his son Jesus in her womb. So God is with you. Mary, don't, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You have been given grace. You have been given favor. And God is with you. Rightfully so, in verse 29, we see that Mary is perplexed and pondering. The word perplexed means to be greatly troubled, to be disturbed, or to be confused. And to ponder, you know the definition of, of pondering, but let me give it to you. It's, it's to reason or to reckon, to consider. It's related to the word that we use today, dialogue. It can be, it can be used in, in, in the form of a conversation between two parties, but it, it can also be used as inward reflection or a conversation that you're having with yourself. This is what I love about Mary. Evidently, Mary was a thinker. We see that. She's perplexed. She's pondering. She's going to be very, very careful with the words that she, she utters next. We see in Luke 2.19, as the nativity scene is, is unfolding before us, that, that uh, Luke writes this, But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. I love that Mary's a thinker. And Mary's holding a discussion with herself in her own mind about the words that Gabriel has just uttered. And it seems that part of her, her pondering, part of this inward conversation, um, comes out audibly. Because she asked this question, how can this be? I'm, I'm a virgin. How, how is this possible? So I'm going to get over my fear because you've said God is with me. I, I'm getting used to you being in my presence right now. Let's have a conversation. The only thing I can think of is I have no idea how this can happen to me. And so then Gabriel offers an explanation in verses 31 through 33. Listen to what Gabriel says. He says, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He'll be great, and he'll be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, uh, Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. He starts off, and he says, okay, great question. Behold. 
Behold. What's he saying? When he says behold, he's saying, listen up. I need your attention because what I'm about to tell you is absolutely going to rock your world. Like, you have no idea what I'm about to share with you. So I need you to make sure that, that, that we're on the same page here. I need you to be locked in. I need you to be engaged in what I'm about to tell you because here it comes. He says, you will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son. This is how this is going to happen, Mary. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son. We know that God had already worked in a mysterious, miraculous way by allowing Elizabeth to conceive in her womb, right? John the Baptist. And just as miraculous, God allows the Holy Spirit to overshadow Mary and conceive in her womb the baby Jesus. Fulfilling the prophecy that we see in Isaiah 7.14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. Gabriel goes on and he says, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call him Jesus. His name will be Yeshua. His name will mean Jehovah is help or Jehovah is salvation. He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will be great. It's very, very similar to what he's already said to John the Baptist's father. Hey, he's going to be great in the sight of God. But yet we know that even the greatness of John the Baptist pales in comparison to the greatness of Jesus. Concerning Gabriel's, Gabriel's explanation to Mary, one commentator says this. Gabriel's message to Mary introduces the pivotal point in redemptive history. How people respond to the child of whom Gabriel spoke will determine their eternal destiny. Think about that. The work is beginning here in Gabriel's response to Mary. And for year after year after year, for generation after generation after generation, how we respond to Gabriel's message to Mary will determine our eternal destiny. I think there's much to consider here. And just think about it, just for a second. The Savior of the world... Would be, would be conceived by the Holy Spirit and carried by the Virgin Mary. He would come from a small, relatively unknown town. He would grow in wisdom and in stature. He would live a perfect life. He would die a criminal's death to bring people back to God. Alistair Begg defines this as life-changing message. A life-changing message and a mind-stretching mystery. The message that Gabriel has given Mary, the message that we are responsible to re respond, it's a life-changing message. And it's a mind-stretching mystery. There is much to consider in these three verses. We move on and we see Mary's response. In verse 38, Mary says, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. I love this. This is such a simple response. Gabriel begins. He says, Behold. Let me, let me make sure we're on the same page. Pay attention. Look at me. I need your attention. He gives Mary this news. 
As Mary thinks about it, as she's perplexed, as she's pondering, as, as she hears his explanation, how does she respond? She says, behold, hey Gabriel, look at me, I need your attention. What I'm about to say is going to blow your mind, right? Behold, the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And we know that the word that Gabriel is given is the word from God. Mary. Little Mary. Says, listen, I'm in. <laughs> May it be done to me according to your word. We fast forward a little bit as Mary makes her way from Nazareth to her sister Elizabeth's house. It would have been about a three-day journey for Mary on foot. And certainly three days is enough time to think through what has just happened, to process through what had just happened, and then to even begin to develop a response to the news. She gets to Elizabeth's house. They exchange greetings. And then Mary says this in verses 46 through uh, 53. Mary says, my soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation to those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their own hearts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, and he's exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, and he's sent away the rich empty-handed. In these verses, verses 46 through 53, and then uh, going all the way through 55, Mary's response has at least 12 allusions to the Old Testament. Some say what Mary says here in this text sounds very familiar to, to Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, concerning the birth of Samuel. Others say, when you listen to what Mary says in this text, you can hear the words of Miriam as the Israelites are, are leaving Egypt, leaving bondage from Egypt. Either way, as you think about what Mary says, this is a great indicator that Mary would have been very familiar with God's word. David Guzik writes, the scriptures were on her heart and they came out through her song. As I thought about that this week, I thought, what a great response to any news, to any event, in any circumstance, that we would know God's word so well, that we would mirror it so closely in our response. And that's what Mary did. As she responds, she says, she says, my soul exalts the Lord. This is her response. She's, she's had time to think about it. Her response is this, my soul exalts the Lord. Different translations say it differently. My soul proclaims the greatness of God. My soul magnifies the Lord. My soul praises the Lord's greatness. In this picture of Mary, we have a picture of a person who is singing. We're mindful of the words of the psalmist in Psalm 103.1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, praise his holy name. Spurgeon comments on this, and he says, Many are our faculties, 
emotions, and capacities, but God has given them all to us, and they ought to join in chorus to his praise. Listen, half-hearted, ill-conceived, unintelligent praises are not such as we should render to our loving Lord. We don't see that in Mary's response. If the law of justice demanded all our heart and soul and mind for the Creator, much more may the law of gratitude put in a comprehensive claim for the homage of our whole being to the God of grace. And that's exactly what Mary is doing. She says, all that is within me is exalted. I'm exalting the Lord. My soul exalts the Lord, declaring the greatness of God. In a physical sense, the word exalt means to physically enlarge. So think about it this way. What a great picture here of Mary welling up and bursting with praise, doing all that she can, everything within her, to show the greatness of God. She's magnifying God. She's making God known. She goes on and she says, He has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. She understands that God has set his gaze upon her and shown favor. This humble state here is simply a description of her social standing. She understands that she is socially powerless. And she has very little value. She uses this word bond slave again. Mary underscores her humble state by adding the term bond slave to describe her relationship with God. Behold, your bond slave. She says it in verse 38. She goes on as she's uh, declaring the righteousness of God, the goodness of God. And she says, your bond slave again. Here's what she understood. She, has, she is one who has close binding ties to another and that other is God. As a bond slave, she understands she is obligated. She is desirous to do his will. As a bond slave, she understands that she is one who is ultimately subject to God and his authority. Ralph Earl writes, Mary placed herself completely at God's disposal. Even though she knew the outcome would bring shame and disgrace on her in the eyes of her neighbors. And I think there is such great application right here. If we get nothing else this morning, may it be this. That Mary was willing to do sometimes what we are so unwilling to do. And that is to place ourselves at the disposal of God even in the midst of ridicule and shame. Even understanding that ridicule and shame most certainly will come my way. See, I think so often we choose what is comfortable. We choose what is safe. We choose what is known. More times than not, we want to choose these things that are guaranteed. And Mary chose none of the above. Mary's faith was on full display. When she said, behold, your bond slave, may it be set, may it be what you've just said, may it be said of me, I'm, I'm in, I'm going to do it. I understand that ridicule is coming my way, that shame is coming my way. I'm choosing everything that is opposite of comfort and safety and guarantee. I came across this quote in an article I read last week concerning Mary's response, and I think it's very, very profound. She, 
The writer says this, she performs the mundane, often unnoticed, but life and death important act of mothering, and she does so in the most dangerous of circumstances. Listen, while Joseph decides her fate, she carries this baby. While Herod schemes his death, she nurses him, she changes him, she feeds him, she sings to him, she exercises her faith in the liturgies of the ordinary and therefore valorizes countless women who have done the same. Mary is willing to walk in the unknown. She goes on and she says, The mighty one has done great things for me. Her song makes much of God. It highlights his goodness. It highlights his faithfulness. It highlights his power. And this morning, we're reminded that the mighty one has done great things for us. In all this, we're reminded of God's love for us today. Let me close by reading you uh, a snippet from the Jesus Storybook Bible. Sally Lloyd-Jones writes this as she summarizes Nehemiah, Malachi, and, and Ezra and puts her words, maybe how God would say to us, says this, says, I can't stop loving you. You are my heart's treasure, but I lost you. And now I'm coming back for you. I'm like the sun that gently shines on you, chasing away darkness and fear and death. You'll be so happy. You'll be like little calves running free in an open field. I'm going to send my messenger, the promised one, the one you have been waiting for, the rescuer. He is coming. So get ready. And we know that he has come. That's what we celebrate here at Christmas, the first coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we know that he's coming again. The rescuer is coming, and so we must be ready. The only one who can bring salvation. Perhaps the one for whom you've been looking, and you just didn't think you'd find him here this morning at First Baptist Church. Salvation can be yours today as you respond to the rescue, part of the, be the, the best, greatest rescue story that's ever been written. It can happen right now. Or maybe, maybe just maybe, you just need to sit and remind yourself that you're loved. Remind yourself that you are known. And in doing so, to be motivated by that love. To make much of the one who has and will always love you unconditionally. Matthew Henry says this, We must, as Mary did, guide our desires by the word of God and ground our hopes upon it. And to echo with Mary, May it be done to me according to your word. Father God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to, to hear your word and now to respond. God, give us, give us courage. Give us the ability to do what you would have us to do this morning, to make much of you. Thank you so much for your love for us. God, thank you for the grace that is given to us through your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand, and as you stand, give you an opportunity to respond to the invitation. The invitation is this. If you've never responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ, today would be a great day to do so. I'd love to talk with you. I know our staff members will be down front. If you're looking for a church home, I invite you to come and join us here at First Baptist Church and what God is doing through this church. Or maybe you just need to come and pray 
or talk. We'd love to uh, meet with you as well. However you need to respond, I pray that you would do so now. Let's be seated, please. Thank you so much, Philip, for that wonderful message. And uh, where's Ryan? Ryan Dupree. There he is. Ryan, how about coming over here, please, sir? I don't know what I'm supposed to say or not supposed to say, but I'm going to say something. And uh, uh, Ryan has been diagnosed this week uh, with uh, colon cancer and um, a fairly serious number on the colon cancer, but they feel like it's contained. Is that correct? And so he's going to have surgery this Friday. So I thought it would be great before we close. Men, let's come gather around him. And let's just pray for Ryan. Folks, you join us too as we pray. Father, there is uh, there's nothing that takes you by surprise. And so I just pray for Ryan. I pray for healing. I pray that you would give him a peace that can only come from you, that passes all understanding. I pray for his surgeon, for the doctors that will work with him. I pray for wisdom and guidance for them and for their team. And I pray that through all of this, that you would bring healing to his body, that you would bring even a new uh, desire to serve and to love you, through this experience. And so we know when we walk through these times that, uh, that you've promised you'll be with us. And Lord, as we heard in the message this morning, you tell us to fear not. And so I just pray that you would give him uh, just a real sense of your presence through this time. We lift him up to you, pray your blessings upon him, and it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. You be praying for Ryan and pray for him this week, he'll have surgery on Friday. Well, we have first family lunch back there. There are uh, 1,255 tickets left if you don't have one. I don't know how many are back there, but, but there, there are, there are some, some probably, so you can check. And then if you need tickets for the Christmas pageant, uh, they're gone for Sunday afternoon. They're gone for Saturday afternoon at 2. There are some for Friday evening and Saturday evening at 5. So I would encourage you to get them this morning because I anticipate that we're going to give out all of the tickets for the Christmas pageant this year, So, or at least come very close to that. So uh, get them this morning. They'll be available back in the Washington Street lobby.
All right. Well, if anybody, nobody has any questions, <laughs> let's stand and we're going to be dismissed. Mike, just give me the key there.